I don't have all of my stuff, so wait a minute. How are you? Welcome. Next week is uh, Thanksgiving. Are, you, are How many of you are traveling for Thanksgiving? Oh, quite a few. Hope you have safe travels. Um, next Sunday, um, I will be preaching the sermon in both the 8.30 and 11 o'clock service. We will be having class, and some of you will be teaching. <laughs> We're going to have fun next Sunday. Um, so um, stay tuned for that. It will be it will be great. But we will be meeting next Sunday. Um, and if we if there's nobody signed up for sacred cookies yet, Sherry will bring them. The list is out there. Oh, we got somebody. Okay, you're off the hook. Oh Lord. So next Sunday, you know, preachers, uh, the, the staff here, the, we have a, a, a big clergy staff here, and so the clergy get what we call low Sundays. You know, the low Sundays are the Sundays after big Sundays, like so Sunday after Thanksgiving, Sunday after Christmas, Sunday after New Year, Sunday after Easter, you know, that sort of thing we got. And the text for next Sunday is just delightful. It's the one where Jesus says, if you don't, be nice to nice people, I mean to people who need it, I'm going to burn you in hell. <laughs> so it'll be a challenge to see how that goes. So I hope you're here. So would you make sure your cell phone is off and welcome to those of you who are online watching this. As always, thank you to Tim and John and Laura for making sure that this works. Um, and let's begin as we do by being in silence. Just if it helps to close your eyes, just put your feet on the floor, take a deep breath or two, and just be here. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be at our ends and at our departing. And no matter who you are and no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. I know <clears throat> that there are a couple of people here today who, uh, for whom this is uh, not their first time to be in Ordinary Life, but it's the first time to be here for a while. I'm not going to point them out <laughs> and embarrass them. I wouldn't do that. Um, <clears throat> one is here because she attended a funeral I did yesterday and said it was the best funeral she had ever attended. <laughs> And I said, yes, people are dying to have that kind of funeral. And then she decided to turn around and leave, but I grabbed her by the arm so she couldn't do that. So if this is your first Sunday here, um, what we're attempting to do here is 
carry a, an involving understanding and, and, and uh, involvement with what we call God or the sacred in one hand and an evolving understanding and involvement with what we call self in the other and then to walk a path that is illuminated by the life and teachings of Jesus. That's where we are at the present moment. And uh, we are using um, the Lord's Prayer, what's known as the Lord's Prayer, for our guidance in this. And so far, what you've missed is that what I've said is that the Lord's Prayer, as we are familiar with it, is not in the Bible. It's, um, there's a longer version that's in Matthew that's close to what we use in our services, but <clears throat> the version that we use is not in the Bible. The version that we use first appeared in the Book of Common Prayer, somewhere in the 16th century. The second thing that we said is that the Lord's Prayer was not constructed by Jesus. It was not something he sat down and taught to his disciples, and Matthew wrote it down, as you can see in The Chosen. Rather, it was something that was constructed sometime probably around the year 60, 70 by the followers of Jesus who needed to pass on to others who did not know him or the intimate circle of people that travel with him what they were up to and what they taught. The first, um, so that, 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 I'll come back to that in a minute. And the other thing we said is that the Lord's Prayer as it's currently constructed is not helpful for our use unless you do a lot of religious literacy work because it posits the idea that God is a bigger than life male out there in the sky somewhere, our Father who art in heaven. And that's very contradictory to the incarnational teaching of Jesus who said that God is here among us and within us, that we are within that realm of empowerment and that it is within us. My understanding of what the, the word God points to is a very universal understanding and a universalizing one that God is not merely in everything. God is everything. Personalizing everything, giving warmth and color to everything. And I, last week I said, and I said, I don't know whether I created this line or it found me somewhere I said that God is not the architect. God is the architecture in which we live that, that way. Or to put it another way, um, that may sound heretical. Um, we, right now, are the experience that God is having of being human. That is my understanding of what the incarnation is all about. So we meet God in each other. Life is all a piece, and mystics experience that they are not apart from life, but that they are a part of life. So the phrase I want to lift up and look at the one today is the one that says, give us this day our daily bread. The first actual use that we have in written form of the Lord's Prayer being used by a group of Jesus followers is in a document that is called the Didache. Now, you can look up the Didache on um, Wikipedia. It's a very brief document, and it means the teaching. That's what the word means, the teaching of the early church. 
and it has instruction for people who are gathered. And it would be like um, a book of worship or a book of policy written by and for the early followers of Jesus. It was written sometime around the time the book of Matthew was written. Conservative scholars place that about the year 80 so that the Christian movement, the Jesus movement, was still part of the Jewish movement at that time. Some place it a little later, but 80 seems to be about the right time. So the version that is in the Didache is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily, the word actually should be translated needful bread, and forgive us our debt, that meant financial debt, not sins, as we forgive our debtors. Bring us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, for thine is the power and the glory forever. Now, I said last week that one of the reasons that we doubt that Jesus taught much about prayer, and this is the phrase we're going to look at today, um, is that the, the disciples of Jesus are Jews, and Jews prayed all the time. Good Jews, observant Jews, as part of belonging to the family or the clan or the temple group, would obey the laws of Judaism and the laws involved regular praying. So they prayed before meals. They prayed on rising. They prayed um, after body functions. They prayed um, before bedtime. They prayed a lot. They prayed on going in and out of their homes. And in most Jewish homes today, or on most Jewish homes, you will see something that is um, called a mezuzah. Uh, this is mine. It was brought to me from someone who went to Israel when that was a safe thing to do. The word mezuzah simply means doorpost in Hebrew, and the Hebrew word on this mezuzah is simply shalom. That's what shalom looks like in Hebrew. So, <clears throat> so phrases in the Lord's Prayer were taken from some of what Jesus said, from some of what he did, probably the most authentic Jesus line in the Lord's Prayer is the one about forgiveness, which we will get to in a couple of weeks. And the other phrases in the Lord's Prayer were shaped by Jewish worship, by Jewish liturgy, and by Jewish history. Now, <clears throat> I have studied the biblical materials for a few years, like a lot. And um, I have come to the conclusion that the writings in the New Testament that we have, that we consider Jesus' narratives, this would be Mark, Matthew, and Luke. This is the order in which they were written. They are certainly not histories. I'll say more about that in a moment. But I am even further convinced that the Gospels were shaped to fit Jewish liturgy. Mark fits six months of the Jewish liturgical year. Matthew covers the entire year. Plus, Matthew also was written, shaped by an understanding of the Torah, or the first five books 
of the Jewish uh, of the Hebrew scriptures, and if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, you will you will see that there are five distinct blocks of material in the Gospel of Matthew. For example, you will have the first block, which has to do with the birth narratives of Jesus, and you have this block that has to do with what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and in that block of material, Jesus doesn't condemn anyone. He's very gracious and includes everyone and you go through three more blocks till you get to the block where the scriptures that are in our current lectionary that we're reading from which is called the apocalyptic block in the gospel of Matthew and it's all full of judgment and if you don't obey the rules then you're going to be big trouble and anyway these are not biographies these are not histories these are liturgical creations that were used by Jews in their worship I think it's exciting to know this kind of stuff, but other people don't. So um, the existing stories that we have then were shaped by Jewish worship. And um, there is no aspect of the Lord's Prayer that was more significantly shaped by Jewish worship and, and, scripture, and Jewish scripture than the one that we're looking at today Give us this day our daily bread. Now, I want to end up today with information and knowledge that is relevant to how we actually live our lives out there. But in order to get there, we're going to go through some other kinds of information ahead of time. Because what I'm going to claim is that in order to understand this text and in order to live out this text, we have to have a non-dual stance in faith which I'm going to call an intense commitment and a relaxed faith at the same time. Both those things at the very same time. Very intense commitment and a very relaxed faith. Now, I've lost count of the number of books that I have read about the Lord's Prayer. I heard a scholar in the Jesus Seminar years ago um, give a very reasoned, logical explanation of why and how this prayer created out of the Jesus community or included in the Jesus community's liturgy had to do with actual food to eat that day because hunger and food scarcity was such an issue for people at that time. Now, there is no way that we can know experientially what daily life was like for Jewish people. By the way, the word companion simply means bread with, eating bread with. Pan is the word for bread and come is with. So companion is those that we eat bread with and bread was essential to um, that diet. And there's not a person in this room, there's not a person listening online who doesn't know where your next meal is coming from. We all do. And, and some of us even shop for days more than the next day. We shop for a week. However, this phrase, give us this day our daily bread, meant more than just daily bread. It was also a challenge to live today. Just live today. And again, this is very difficult for us to do because we're drawn into the past or we're anticipating the future and we have difficulty being right here, right now. It is also a demand for justice. This prayer is 
and it is also um, uh, asking for help in simply trusting. So the prayer is all of this at one time. Neil Douglas Klotz translates the Aramaic of this line this way. Endow us with the wisdom to produce and share what each, be what each being needs to grow and flourish. Now, I like that. I, I, I think the creative work that's been done focusing on the economic situation of Jesus' time helps us understand how those people lived and what they dealt with, and it certainly makes praying for daily bread easy. But there is also a very rich Jewish history with and around bread that makes this phrase in the Lord's Prayer have a history that looks back thousands of years into the history of Jewish worship. So... Um, Bread, which was so essential for life and living for Jews, for all people, but for Jews, it makes sense that eventually that would find its way into worship liturgies. Got it? That makes sense? So let's see if I can make it make more sense. The, bread, the word bread is used in the scripture about 600 times. And the phrase that we're looking at today, which should be translated sufficient bread, out of all those 600 times, that phrase in the entire Bible is used twice. <laughs> bread was a very crucial part of the Passover celebration. It was adopted by Jesus and his followers as a central part of their community. They got together and they shared bread together. It's a very powerful metaphor in the Jewish history, in liturgy. As a matter of fact, by the time you get to the second century and the Gospel of John is written, the words are put in the mouth of Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. Now, whoever wrote all this stuff down did us a favor as well as maybe a disservice because there are some things that get in the way of our hearing this phrase. Um, and I just want to lift those up and maybe by being aware of them, we might understand the phrase better. The first thing that gets in our way of understanding the phrase is that we're not Jewish. And there's nothing we can do about that. We can read about what it means to be Jewish but we don't know. Um, one of my teachers said, um, Jews have things on their coffee tables that we put in museums. They have an understanding of history and identity that unless you're Jewish, you don't understand with, you don't understand. The second thing that gets in the way of our hearing this prayer, give us this day what we need is that we love to be in control. We want to control tomorrow. We want even to control what happens today. And you don't have to be um, alive very long to know that control is an illusion. And control is what gives us problems with trusting. Control is what gives us difficulty being present. If we're trying to control, we're not trusting. 
And if we're trying to control, we're always trying to make sure things happen the way we want to so we're not in the moment. But the third reason that this is a phrase that's hard for us to hear is that we live in a culture where the religion of the culture, consumerism, has trained us to be dissatisfied with what is. We're so attracted to the new and the novel that we don't like the same old bread. Whenever I have an opportunity, as I did yesterday, uh, or any time, to try to seduce somebody into coming to this gathering, I do so. Because I think that what we have going here is worthwhile. And I think that the opportunities for community and mission, education, growth, involvement, are they're multifaceted here, and they're, they're rich in opportunity for anybody who wants to take advantage of it. You can come and just got leave and let that be it, but there's more here. And so I will try to say to somebody, why don't you come to Ordinary Life? I try not to tell them any of my jokes while doing this because that will mean that they won't, they won't come. Um, so recently, someone said to me after I did my sales pitch, said, well, we may come some Sunday. I think that we've heard about all our pastor has to say. <laughs> now, I don't know who their pastor was, but if she or he is doing their job correctly, that's probably true. I mentioned to you last week uh, that there are affirmations of faith that are said in some gatherings of Jesus' followers that are not an insult to your intelligence. I personally think the Apostles' Creed is, but that's just one person's opinion. So somebody asked me to give an example of that, and so that's what I would like to do. It's a little uh, longer than you, you can reduce this down, but it's only 400 words, so listen to it. We are a community of faith. We share a vision of God, a God whose spirit is love, accessible to all, yet beyond our, our knowing, the source of all being, the way leading to wholeness, the spirit which pervades everything. We search for the meaning of God and our own experience revealed in those sacred stories which have been passed down to us. We tell them again and again of God the Creator, the Almighty, who made everything that is and saw that it was good. Of Jesus of Nazareth, who in history lived among us, healed the afflicted, taught, suffered, and died. He forgave those who crucified him. In the mystery of the resurrection, he continues to live more profoundly through the ages the incarnation of love, the Christ, to whom his disciples have responded, my Lord and my God. He shows us the way which leads to the reconciliation of all things, saying, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. It is the way of love, compassion, justice, forgiveness, and peace. Of the Spirit, the breath, the wind of God, the giver of life, the holy wisdom who inspires the people of God to cry out for justice for the powerless and oppressed, to see the presence of God in every created thing, and to respond with love. Of the communion of saints, of all the people of God, living dead and yet to be born, 
who are empowered to recognize that they are and always have been brothers and sisters, one family in God. We are reborn in the spirit. Followers of that way shown by Jesus to love God with our whole being, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to treat others as we would have them treat us, to strive for justice and peace, to have respect and compassion for every person and for the whole of creation, to forgive those who do us harm, to love one another as Christ has loved us. We journey together on this way towards reconciliation with the whole creation, we break bread together and pray together. We reach out to one another for strength beyond our own. This is our community. This is our faith. This is a post-Copernican take on an affirmation of faith, and it's really very beautiful, I think. It's long, but you could condense it. Um, you can condense most of Buddhism into 12 sentences. You can condense most of Islam into five. Um, Hillel, a very liberal rabbi who was a contemporary of Jesus, was once asked if he could explain the whole law in, in uh, one sentence, or if he could explain the whole law by standing while standing on one foot. And uh, he said, Whoever is, whatever is hateful you, do not do to your fellow man. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. Actually, you know, you can do the whole Christian story by saying nothing. By just by nailing two pieces of wood together. I'll elaborate on that sometime. So I call this class Ordinary Life for a reason. The things that matter are not sparkly and new and novel. They're ancient. They're ordinary, like bread. Now, in order to teach this and about how bread worked its way into the Jewish liturgy and all the way down to being in this prayer and what its relevance is for us, we um, have to talk about something that I think you probably know intuitively, but it never gets articulated in church, and I think I personally have never heard what I'm about to say said in any church. The major stories that most people are familiar with, whether they come to church or not, in the Christian tradition, are the stories of the Garden of Eden, the Exodus, which is one I want to talk about today, the birth narratives of Jesus, the crucifixion stories known as the last week stories, those stories. And here's what never gets said. Those things never happened. Very little of the Bible is history. As we think of that word, the Bible is an affirmation of faith. So I will go say it blunt, bluntly, and, and, and that is that the Exodus story with Charlton Heston, I mean Moses, I'm sorry. That's how educated we are, right? 
the, the, the Exodus story with um, Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage into the promised land never happened. Don't take my word for this. Please, go check it out yourself. Go look up Exodus on Wikipedia. And one of the lines in Wikipedia that I lifted out is, most mainstream scholars do not accept the biblical Exodus account for a number of reasons, and then goes on to enumerate what those are. Now, you notice that I have not been struck by lightning yet. <laughs> you take the Exodus story or the birth story, the crucifixion story, the Garden of Eden story as history, and you miss it. You miss the impact of that story. The Exodus story is a myth. Now, a myth, according to Joseph Campbell, is a truth so large, so important, so mysterious that it cannot be contained by facts. Details of a myth are not to be taken literally. When they are, not only is the power of the story weakened, but you get bad theology that grows out of that. You take the Garden of Eden story as a history and you get bad theology out of that. It's a myth. I have complained about this sort of thing for years, that what is taught in mainline seminaries, which is what, this is what I was taught, doesn't make it to the education program of Catholic and Protestant churches. Now, why that is, I'll let you think about. But I wonder, what's the use of a seminary education if you're not going to pass it on? We've got to grow up, and we've got to graduate to the level where we read the biblical materials as they were intended to be read, not as our doctrinal requirements make us read them. There's a difference between those two. The, 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 the Exodus story is not ancient journalism. It is not objective history. The point of the Exodus story is that we have to recognize all the ways we are in bondage and after doing that, do the heroic, hard, messy work of moving from bondage to freedom, from death to life, from darkness to light. Now, we want things to be simple, real, and magical. Believe this and you'll be okay. But real life is not that way. The sad fact is for many, being religious, which many interpret as going to church. You ask most people today, are you religious? And they'll say, does it if they go to church? And, and it means that you believe stuff in order to get stuff. All right? I believe this, I'll get eternal life. Or if I'm in some other, like a prosperity gospel, if I believe this, I'll get a lot of money. I don't think you can read Jesus as ever saying any of that. So with that said, I want you to use your imagination and go with me to a moment in time that never existed, but always is. 
Or as some storytellers put it, I don't know if this really happened, but I know it's true. So we had this leader. He was very charismatic. Um, his name was Moses, you may remember. He, he, was, he was a guy of great courage and great insight. Um, he grew up kind of biracial, and, and um, he grew up being multicultural for sure. And um, he saw things that he wanted to communicate to his people that would cause them to have freer lives. And so he led us out of bondage through a series of events that um, you would not believe. This kid comes home from church one Sunday, and his dad says, what did you learn in church? On Sunday, he said, well, we learned about Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And he said, really, tell me about it. What happened? Well, um, Moses used the CIA to um, get the Egyptians distracted while he got the Egyptians out, and they went to the Red Sea, and the Egyptians were following them, so they built some pontoons to cross the Red Sea, and they called in airships to bomb the Egyptians, and the father was like, what? Did they teach you that in Sunday school? And the kid said, well, no, but if I told it like they taught it, you'd never believe it. <laughs> there were some awesome, exciting events, and we got set free. Now, as, a, as an aside, and as an illustration of moving from bondage to freedom, I want to use as an example people who are in the recovery movement from some addiction. If you talk to a recovering alcoholic, every one of them, without exception, will say to you some version of, it is a miracle that I survived my drinking habit. That's Egyptian freedom. They know the Exodus story personally, and they will tell you that church would be a better organization in every way if it were more like AA than one where we come, where we appear to each other, that we have it all together. At any rate, we escaped bondage, miraculous ways. It was wonderful. And... Um, after we get out of Egypt, we have to pilgrimage. Now, I don't know if pilgrimage is a verb, but I do know it's something you do day after day. And at first, it was so exciting. We were free. The territory was new. And then it gets to be as life can be, you know, just one day after another. One day, one day after another. Sometimes... It's just one damn day after another. It's not to say there are no special moments. There were. I mean, you know, Moses goes up and gets some laws, hits a rock, and water comes out. And we hit a space of time where there was nothing to eat. Food was hard to get. And so one morning we wake up when we find that there's this substance on the ground that we didn't know what to call it. Um... So we called it manna. The literal translation of manna from a Hebrew is this stuff. All right? Actually, 
as it gets to be used in the scripture, it's this worthless stuff. But we didn't get there first. It doesn't happen immediately because, holy smoke, there's stuff to eat. And I have heard liberal theologians try to explain manna by saying that it was some excretion of a plant that existed and was on the ground and all of that. I don't believe that. It's a myth. It's a story. And day after day, manna appeared. God was so good to us. Day after day, manna appeared. Day after day, it appeared. Go back and read the story. It appeared day after day after day for 40 years. 
We want something better. I've heard about all my pastor has to say. As I said, it makes sense that something so central to life and living like bread would show up in the liturgy of the Jewish people. And it does. Uh, Matzah bread is the center of the Seder meal. Um, plays a major role in a Passover meal. Bread was placed in the temple as a sign of the presence of God. It's called the showbread in uh, the Hebrew scripture. One of the temptations of Jesus was, if you're really the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Uh, bread was used at the Last Supper. Again, this is a mythic symbol. Bread as a symbol of that which can be broken and taken into ourselves and nourish us. Our brokenness can turn around and contribute to our healing. Now, <clears throat> I'm using the Jesus story as a lens through which to see a way to walk to freedom. And there is enough um, of my evangelical Southern Baptist history left in me that I want to entice you to follow this path. In a minute, we'll sing an invitation hymn. And <laughs> you can refuse this invitation, but if you do, please don't do it because you get hung up on some doctrinal stuff that the church currently puts out. Don't get hung up because you fundamentalists want you to believe in a literal heaven and hell and all that. Don't, don't do that. Don't, and don't say, well, I can't follow because I don't believe in the Apostles' Creed. Nobody believes in the Apostles' Creed in the way that the people who wrote the Apostles' Creed meant for it to be believed. So don't, let's, just don't go there. The real issue is will you accept or will you reject an authentic call to involve your life with love, honesty, and freedom? Yes or no? That's it. And it's not just for you, but it's for all of us. The prayer is give us this day our daily bread, not give me. This is how it has to do with justice. Now, you might say, I hope, what is the practical application of this? Well, <clears throat> I hope it's obvious, but I'll, I'll spell it out. I don't want to go to a doctor who has ceased being a student of medicine. Do you? No. I am not likely to be served well by this physician. And I believe that whenever any of us adopt an attitude that causes us to cease to be learners, that limits our future. There's just no such thing as standing still on this path. So in the Hebrew scripture, the word learner is used to describe those who would build the future when they were in bondage. In the early Jesus movement, the name for someone who followed Jesus was learner, which is disciple. That's what disciple means, someone who learns. Jesus wanted to make disciples, learners. That is, those who would share the way with him, and sharing would only be possible if these people open themselves to unending learning by eating daily bread. 
Now, I want what I present in here to be appealing and novel and for you not to go away saying, well, I think we've heard about all Bill has to say. But I just have the same old stuff to say over and over, one way or another. That's not the purpose of being here, to see if Bill is tantalizing and creative and novel and all that. The, the real purpose of being here is to open ourselves to love, honesty, and freedom in a way that contributes to our wholeness. Now, my question to you, without putting you on the spot, I'm such a liar. I want to put you on the spot. My question to you is, will you be open to this? You know, this time that we're spending right here constitutes less than one 168th of your week. What do you do outside of here that contributes to taking what you learn in here and amplifying it in a way that it nourishes you through the week? Do you read things that enlarge you, allow you to bring enlarged living to the world? Do you talk to people about what we talk about in here? Can you say to others what you believe and why? I, I don't know about you, but I find that I get out of things pretty much what I put into them. Right? If I don't put much into it, I don't get much out of it. Um, my beautiful bride is, um, carries the music gene in our relationship, so she makes sure that we have... Tickets to the Houston Symphony, and we go to performances at the Houston Symphony. And um, this week, we heard a piece commissioned by several renowned world orchestras, a piece that uh, won a Pulitzer Prize, actually. Um, and I promise you that I had not read about the composer, her history, the composition, its background and history, I would not gotten nearly as much out of the piece as I got. Now, however you answer the questions I put to you, and by the way, that was my subtle way of having a daily spiritual practice. All right. However you answer that is your karma. Or in the Jewish Christian lingo, judgment. One of the five remembrances in Buddhism is I inherit the results of my acts of body, speech, and mind. My actions are my continuation. Give us this day our daily bread. And my theology about who God is and who we are leads me to affirm, I don't know about you, that we're to be the answer of this prayer to and for each other and for our neighbors. How much more real could we possibly make love and justice than by feeding each other, literally and metaphorically? How much more could we honor Mother Earth than by not hoarding and taking more than we need? How much more spiritual could we be than to realize that materiality does not satisfy, but that it's the spiritual that nourishes? 
Teachings about love, truth, and freedom are hard to hear in this world of growing violence and chaos, and I know it sounds naive, but one of the reasons we're in the mess we're in today is that we're seeking to solve spiritual problems by political means. Now, if you want the new wind of life blowing across your being, if newness is what you want for yourself and for us, then the best thing that you can do is to get involved in wrestling with the same old thing. Because out of this worthless food, that's where vigor and vitality come. So there's no startlingly new thing, no new technique or gimmick to be given to work meaning into life. Meaning comes from what we call this worthless food. What we need is this intense commitment and relaxed faith to find it. It's just hard to grow in love, honesty, and freedom without these things. I'm not good at writing poetry, but here's a brief poem. Every year, the tree brings forth the same leaves. But they are always new. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargoes, so watch your step, and please come next week. We'll see you here for the, have a good Thanksgiving, too. See you then. Bye-bye. <laughs>